scripture passage on which the sermon this morning is going to be based comes from 1 John chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2 verse 2. If you're looking in your pew Bibles, you can follow along with us on page 1021. This is what John says, and it's the word of the Lord for us. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we are thankful that you have given us uh, your word. We're thankful that you have given us yourself through the word. Uh, we're thankful that you forgive sinners. And uh, we pray that you would anoint uh, this morning uh, both the preaching and the hearing of this your word. Uh, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, those of you who were here last week, uh, we looked at uh, the vision in Isaiah chapter 6, a vision of God's holiness, a vision of uh, Isaiah's unholiness, a vision of mercy, uh, and a vision for service. And in essence, what we saw was that uh, when he saw himself in the light of God's holiness, Isaiah was undone. Uh, he, was, he was ruined. Uh, another word is he was, uh, he was destroyed. Um, until, at God's command, the seraph some type of angelic being, the seraph took a coal from the altar and he touched Isaiah's lips and he said to him these words, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And the truth of the matter is there are no more comforting words in all of language than those words. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Why? Why are those words comforting? Because there's no greater danger and there's no greater affliction than sin. Sin or lawlessness or rebellion against God is at the heart of every human misery. It's at the heart of every family dysfunction, every fight between husband and wife, every fight between parent and child, 
every employment problem, every fuss getting ready for church, every war, every death, every lost soul, sin. Our sin drove the nails through Christ's hands and his feet. There is no way for any of us to overestimate the effects of sin. Tim Fortner, who was a minister in Tupelo for many years, used to say this, is that sin will take you farther than you want to go, it will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. And the truth is that the Apostle John knew that. He knew all of this. He knew, if you look back in chapter 1, he knew that Christ had appeared. He knew that Christ was proclaimed so that God's people could have fellowship with God and with one another in fullness of joy. John knew all this. But he also knew that sin was the great interrupter of joy. He also knew that sin was the great disruptor of fellowship with God and is the basis for God's rightful, righteous judgment against sinners. And so I'm going to call him Pastor John. He's the Apostle John, but I don't want to call him Pastor John. And so Pastor John, in this text, knowing the dangers of sin, Pastor John, in this text, very tenderly warns his beloved children, his beloved children in the faith. Look what he says here. He says, my little children, my little children. He warns his beloved children in the faith about two false, dangerous perspectives on sin. The first false and dangerous perspective on sin is this. It's that we take sin too lightly. lightly. We, we simply take sin for granted. And, and, and honestly, at some level, this is understandable. Why? Well, the Bible and your life and my life, the Bible and our lives affirm that everyone sins. I mean, it says it here in 1 John. And the Bible also assures us that God will forgive us if we confess our sins to him, 1 John 1, chapter 9. <laughs> so, we all sin, but if we confess our sins, God forgives us, right? So no worries, right? Well, actually wrong. There's a difference between living by grace and presuming upon grace. Nowhere in the Bible do you find a casual approach to sin? Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, he didn't mean literally pull out your eyeball and cut off your hand. But what he did mean is, is that sin is a serious disease and it calls for a serious remedy. The old theologian A.W. Pink said, one of the aims of the gospel is that we adopt this very attitude of determining not to sin. But on top of all this, indifference to sin really is completely contrary to who the believer is in Christ. If you're a believer in this room, and I say to you, I mean, it's, sin's just no big deal, is it? You're going to say, what are you talking about? It's a huge deal. And so to be indifferent to it is something that is just completely foreign to who a believer is in Christ. A believer is united to Christ by grace through regeneration and faith, and therefore we're necessarily united to him at all of the points of his saving work. We've been crucified with Christ. We have died to sin as the controlling principle in our lives. It is no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. In the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. We are new creations in Christ. Now, how can someone who is united to Christ in all of the saving activity of his life say that sin is really no big deal? Romans chapter 6 
How can, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The Bible is clear that what a Christian is, a Christian is a new creation who makes it his aim to be always pleasing to the Lord. You want to please the Lord. It's not some f forced mechanism. You, you love him and you want to please him. Uh, we delight in the law of the Lord in the inward man. And if not, we really have no credible claim to a genuine faith. And so all of that's true of us. But at the same time, we all struggle with sin every day. I mean, every day we struggle with sin. The in fact, the gospel message of salvation assumes the sinfulness of man, or it wouldn't be a gospel of salvation. From what? But again, as the late professor John Murray puts it, there's a great difference between surviving sin and reigning sin, between saved people in conflict with sin and unsaved people complacent in sin. It is one thing for sin to live in us. It's another thing for us to live in sin. It is one thing for the enemy to occupy the capital. It's another for a defeated enemy to harass the outpost of the kingdom. And that's what's true for the believer. The enemy doesn't occupy the capital. He continues to harass all the outposts of the kingdom, but he doesn't occupy the capital. John's point here is this. The inevitability of sin must not be made a license to sin. This is why he says in verse 1, My little children, my precious, loved little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, this is a theme of the Bible. This is not just an isolated verse in 1 John chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Grace, grace trains us. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the, in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Would anybody in this room, would anybody in this room like to get up this morning and give a testimony to all of the wonderful fruit that came from the sin in your life? Would you want to get up and tell us how wonderful life has been as a result of sin? Would you like to identify various sins and say how great those things were? I shudder. I shudder at my past sins all the time. The question, friends, is not will we sin. We will sin. We will sin until death or until Jesus comes back again. The question is what will be our stance towards sin as we live in a fallen world? What will be our aim? Will it be to fight against sin with all of the grace-empowered effort available to us in Christ Jesus? Or will we simply assume that we will sin 
and thus not fight it, not fight at all. So that's the first false and dangerous perspective on sin that John addresses. Don't take sin lightly. Make it your aim not to sin. The second false and dangerous perspective on sin is that of taking sin too severely. What about when we do sin? And we will. Now again, John speaking here about instances of sin, not settled patterns of sin arising out of unbelief. But what happens when we sin? Does God kick us out of his family? Does God love us less when we sin? He can't love us less because he loves us in Jesus and he can't love Jesus any less. So he can't love us less. He's not going to kick us out of his family. Now, there may be disruption in our fellowship. There may be a disruption in our enjoyment of that fellowship with our heavenly father, but we still remain his beloved children. I mean, if a teenager and a parent have a fuss, well, their fellowship may be interrupted, but guess what? They're still in the same family. And that's the way it is with believers and our Heavenly Father. So how can we know, how can we know that sin does not destroy a believer's relationship with God? How can I be assured of God's forgiveness? Two ways. Look at the text, what he says at the last part of chapter 2, verse 1. The first way we can know is because we have an advocate face-to-face with the Father. We have someone called alongside us. We have someone who undertakes and champions our cause before our Holy Father in heaven. We have one who speaks in our defense, as the NIV puts it. You know, the word for advocate uh, is interesting. It's used here also in the Gospel of John for the Holy Spirit. One writer says it's like this. He said, in the Gospel of John, we see the Holy Spirit pleading Christ's cause before a hostile world. And here in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, we see Christ pleading our cause against the accuser Satan and to our Father God. In the same way that the Holy Spirit was and is our advocate here on earth, so the Lord Jesus is our advocate in heaven, guaranteeing the Father's forgiveness. Christ looked after his people on earth, and he's still looking after them in heaven. You know, in the non-religious world, an advocate was a a friend of the accused person. He was called to speak to his character. He was called to enlist the sympathy of of the judges. But here's the question. How do I know my advocate is really sufficient? I mean, I have an advocate in Christ Jesus, the righteous, but how do I know he's sufficient? Well, the first reason is because he's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's perfect in his person, in his work. Everything about our advocate is righteous or right for the work of advocacy. He's right with God. He's perfect in everything he is and does. We have as our advocate a perfect high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. The second thing is we can know that he's sufficient because he's always in fellowship with the Father. He never falls out of fellowship with the Father. So when we fall out of fellowship, we have an advocate who is always in perfect fellowship to restore us, to present our case and have us restored. And that's going on all the time. But the third way we can be sure that our advocate is sufficient is this, is he is the propitiation. He's the only propitiation. Of course, the question is, what in the world does that mean? You know, there there are only two uses of this Greek noun in the New Testament, and both of them are in this letter. But what does it mean? Again, the late John Murray. What it means is this. 
is that the just judgment of God's wrath for our sins was turned away by God's own provision of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Christ's perfect life and atoning death have appeased God and restored to his favor all who trust Christ for salvation. God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to make provision for the removal of his own wrath. Why? So that his love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. Listen, because of the sacrifice of Christ, we're covered. We're covered in God's sight. And his divine displeasure toward us and our sin is removed. You know, it's interesting that um, normally when you think of an advocate, you think of a lawyer. And normally when you think of a lawyer, you think, among other things, about someone who is in court, who pleads the case, many times seeking to show that the person who is on trial is innocent. Well, the thing about this is, is that Christ, our advocate, does not say to the Father, don't be angry, just forgive and forget. Christ says, look, because of my sacrifice, the liability and guilt for sin that rightly belong to this redeemed sinner has been assumed and satisfied by me. As one old Greek scholar put it, he said, look, Christ doesn't claim before the Father that we're innocent, nor does he present evidence to have us declared innocent. He, he's, not trying to, he's not trying to get a verdict of innocence. To the contrary, our advocate stands before the bar of justice, admitting that we're guilty of all charges of sin against us. That's true of me and more. You're the worst black-hearted scallywag and on and on and on that I have ever seen. And the Christian looks at him and says, I am so much worse than that. If you could just see my real heart, if you could see what I think about, you wouldn't have words bad enough to say about what I am. And so our advocate says, hey, this, this fellow is guilty of every charge against him and more. And then our advocate presents his own saving work as the ground of our acquittal. He says this, in effect, the sins and blemishes, the sins and liabilities of these people were transferred to me, the great sacrifice offered without any blemish from God, offered from God to God. I don't know who said this. I had it written down somewhere, and I just don't know, even know who said it, but he said it this. He said, Christ stands in the court of heaven, a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The marks of his lashes and crucifixion making the appeal. I suffered all this for sinners, and shall it go for naught? Finally, the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, our advocate, our righteousness, stands and says to the Father, it is but right and just that you should forgive the sins of these people. For I have borne their sins, and I have borne the punishment of their sins. I must ask you to put your law to the side. I am here to remind you that the law has been fulfilled, that death has died, that punishment has been inactive. They are free because I died for them. We even can dare to say this, as a result of the work of Christ and his standing in the presence of God on our behalf, God would be unjust if he did not forgive our sins.
So many believers, uh, at least starting at the pulpit and working its way out, many believers struggle and have struggled with stubborn memories and lingering regret over past sins, uh, blown opportunities, toxic relationships, harsh parenting, teenage rebellion, bad temper, impatience, sexual immorality, marital strife, alcohol or drug abuse, and the list could go on and on and on. Regrets over sins that cannot be fixed and cannot be undone. Struggling at times to believe that God really could forgive us for those sins. And I will say this, it's true that these things can leave scars. When I was about nine years old, my cousin Dan and I were out on his farm and um, back in those days they used to have these little cotton houses that were situated around the fields and we climbed up on top of this cotton house and um, somehow I was, I was falling off the cotton house and so uh, it was covered with kudzu. So I reached out as I was falling and I reached out to grab the kudzu, but what I didn't know when I grabbed it was the kudzu was wrapped around barbed wire. So as I, my hands stripped down the wire and I finally let go and just went ahead and fell, I have a scar right now on my ring finger, very, very visible. Because when I hit the ground, I looked at my hand, and as I said in the earlier service, uh, a lot of the stuff that's supposed to be on the inside of your finger was on the outside of my finger. And uh, so my cousin and I, of course, uh, ran back to his house, didn't tell anybody, and uh, went into the bathroom and found some Band-Aids and stuff and stuffed everything back in like it was supposed to be and wrapped a Band-Aid back around it. Um, but I've still got a scar. I still have a scar. And past sins can leave scars. But this scar doesn't hurt me and it can't hurt me. And the past, the sins, the scars of past sins, they have no power. They have no power to hurt us. And in fact, what winds up happening is, is that Christ uses those past sins, those scars, to grow us spiritually as we see our sin and we see our salvation for sin and it takes us back to the throne room again and again because we have nowhere else to go. And so we go back again and again and we thank God for the salvation that we have in Christ. And so I've got the scar, but how can I be assured that I'm forgiven? And the reason is because we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, the propitiation, not a propitiation, but the propitiation. There isn't any other propitiation. There isn't any other atoning sacrifice. He is the atoning sacrifice for all sins, past, present, and future. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Not cleansed us, but it cleanses us. And he's the atoning sacrifice for all sins, for all who will repent and believe on Jesus. And then the kicker at the end is this. Why did God take the initiative to make us clean? Why did he take the initiative to make us clean through the sacrifices of his own son? And the answer is simply because of his love for his people. The only other usage of the word propitiation, this Greek noun, in the New Testament is also in 1 John. It's in 1 John 4.10. And this is love, 
Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ, the propitiation, did not cause God to love us. Rather, it's because God loved us that he sent Christ, the propitiation. Old story told about a seminary professor told the story about how he was in uh, teaching a class filled with all these real smart seminary students, right, cutting their teeth on all the theology and had it going on. And he asked a question. He said, let me ask you a question of the, of the class. Um, why does God love you? And, man, he got all kinds of theological, correct probably, answers. And as the professor just continued to listen to the answers, he, um, tears just started coming out of his eyes and just rolling down his face. And he said, he said, he loves you because he loves you. There is no answer outside of him. His basis for loving you is all in him. And he loves you. And he sent his son. So let me close. So the Christian life is and is meant to be and should be a very thoughtful, intentional life. It is not a life of quesara, whatever will be, will be. That is not the Christian life. It is not a life of let go and let God. It is a very thoughtful life. It is an intentional life. It is not a life where our enemy, where sin or our enemy Satan is to be taken for granted. It's a life of spiritual war. It's a war. Our enemy is brilliant. And he has been a student of the human heart since time began. Since man was created, for the rest of our lives, we will fight against the forces of darkness and our own inclinations to rebel against God. But at the same time, we are in union with Christ. We have in Christ everything we need for the battles. We have the Holy Spirit who enables us to walk in newness of life. We are new creations, no longer under the dominion of sin. And so we can and we must strive in the grace and power of Jesus Christ not to sin. But still, how? Well, generally, I would say this, come to Christ. Come to Christ, the propitiation born a babe in Bethlehem. Come to Christ. Come to Christ in repentance and faith. Pursue church membership and active involvement in a Bible-believing church. Get in Bible studies. Get yourself under the means of grace, words, sacraments, and, and prayer. Behold Christ through the normal means of grace. But specifically and very practically, if we're prone to unrighteous anger in our families, perhaps enlist the help of other believers and prayer partners to hold us accountable. Maybe find a good counselor. Who can help you? If we're struggling with impure thoughts about our mixed doubles tennis partner who is married but not to us, perhaps take a break from the tennis team. Young people in relationships, take care not to set yourselves up for failure. You've heard people say from time to time, stay vertical, not horizontal. 
Covenant eyes. If you struggle with looking at things on your phone or your computer, get covenant eyes and get an accountability partner who's going to get, he's going to, so when things are flagged on your computer or your phone, it flags your buddy and your buddy looks at it and hopefully will text you and say, hey, I got a flag. Everything okay? Give your parents and your spouse free access to your phone. No private passwords. Men, go to bed when your wives go to bed. Not a whole, good, not a whole lot of good's going on when a wife's gone to bed and the husband's sitting up by himself watching TV or looking on his computer. My point is, be thoughtful. Be intentional in Christ. There are many, many wise and grace-empowered ways to fight sin. And when we do sin, when we struggle to believe that God could forgive us, when we struggle to believe that he has forgiven us, let's remember that we have a righteous advocate who stands before God for us, and he has his own scars. He has nail-imprinted hands. He has a pierced side. He has nail prints in his feet. He has gashes on his brow from the crown of thorns that was pressed down into his head. And he presents to the Father all of these things, and he says, this is the proof that the sacrifice for the sins of these people has been made. Thus can we say to Satan and to our sinful inclinations, you have no dominion here. You have no dominion here. And he says, why not? And we say, because my righteousness is in heaven, standing at God's right hand. You be gone. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you. We thank you that we do have an advocate. We thank you that we do have Christ, the propitiation, not a propitiation, but the propitiation. The one who has appeased you by his sacrifice, the one who has reconciled us. We pray that you would give us the grace to have a set mind of fighting sin, but not letting our failures undo us. Why? Because we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.